Hi, everyone, and thanks for giving us your time today for VR Download. In case you're new here, each week we meet in virtual reality using the latest technologies to discuss the next generation of personal computing. I'm in the United States. My name is Ian Hamilton, and I'm joined by my colleague David Heaney in Northern Ireland. VR brings us together into this broadcast studio where we've got multiple automatic cameras, a TV behind us to show images and videos to our viewers, and we can see live comments from YouTube on our tablets in front of us. We syndicate VR download out to all podcast platforms and encourage our audience to become members and subscribe to our work and support us as we continue our work chronicling the next steps in personal computing. We've had an enormous week for VR news. Heaney, what do we have today? Yeah, as you say, this is a really big week for VR news. We're going to start with my PlayStation VR 2 hands-on impressions and Please ask any questions you have in the comments once we start that. We're then going to talk about the Quest Pro unboxing leak that obviously dominated the news cycle this week. We're going to talk about HTC releasing face and eye tracking add-ons for the Vive Focus 3. We're going to talk about Valve fixing the issues with the Steam Hardware Surveys VR section. Disney's CEO statement about wanting to offer park rides in VR. Meta working on third-person legs for its avatars. And finally, the Chinese retailer listing that revealed the apparent launch date for Pico 4, as well as teasing its design. I can't remember a week like this we've had on our VR download before. It is quite intense, all this stuff. I'm already seeing a lot of questions out there. I think we got to get right to it and talk about your time in PSVR 2. There's a lot of jealousy out there, and we've got a three-minute hands-on video that you put together. Great, great hands-on video where you just get right into the news. Hopefully, we can get a little bit of questions and answers and really dive in a little bit deeper. Why don't you walk us through your impressions here? Yeah, so it's summed up in that three-minute video, so we'll mostly focus on taking people's questions here. But essentially, like I said... The first thing you will notice in this headset is that really impressive display and optics. The high dynamic range OLED display is the star of the show here. It, If you've been used to LCD headsets for years, like Quest 2, the contrast, the true deep blacks, and the general feeling of being in a real environment rather than seeing something displayed on a screen is just unmatched by any headsets on the consumer market today. The lenses are clear across the entire periphery. And I saw no issues with that. So that's the display and optic system is really impressive. The other star, of course, was the haptics. When you have those controllers in your hands in something like the tool that you have in Star Wars Tales from the Galaxy's Edge, you can really feel an object rotating around in your hand. It's genuinely impressive. The pass-through was black and white like Quest 2, but much higher resolution. So you could actually see details in your room. There was also no distortion when I brought things close to my face. The eye tracking enabled foveated rendering, which I couldn't notice at any time when I moved my eyes around. There was no like apparent shifting of resolution. And the neatest feature of the whole system was how eye tracking helped you adjust the fit on your head. So if you've ever demoed your headset to someone else, you'll know you kind of have to guess the lens separation adjustment. You have to tell them to move the headset up and down your face. In PlayStation VR 2, you have this neat little interface that shows where your eyes are relative to the lenses and guides you to move the headset up and down and left and right and adjust the lens separation to perfectly match your face. So once you do that, you get the perfect visual fit 
And obviously you just have to tighten a headset on your head and then that's it. You're ready to go. So if anyone has any questions, I think we'll just open up to those. Yeah, I'm seeing a couple questions already here uh, with uh, Gig asking, do you know if it was RGB OLED or Pentile OLED? So it felt like a full RGB OLED. I don't, it, there was no Pentile sub-pixel matrix apparent to me. And so the original PlayStation VR also used an RGB OLED. So I wouldn't be surprised if Sony was able to source that again. And then I saw another question here. Uh, let's see. Any ghosting from Michael Hudgens? Every OLED HMD I've tried has way more ghosting. So why don't we talk about that? So yes, there is the kind of black smear issue that you see in OLED where the color, the true dark blacks kind of retain for a few flame, frames as you move around. But that wasn't really apparent. I think because this is running at 120 hertz, uh, at least in the games I was trying, it the, the, something like a two frame rise isn't such a huge issue. The ghosting that did annoy me and like I talked about in my impression was on the software side, it was the reprojection. The games I was trying ran at 60 frames per second, reprojected to 120 hertz. And it meant that if you moved your hand close to your face or if you if you kind of positionally leaned around, it, there was a double image on almost every object in the scene. And this was really distracting to me. I know it didn't matter to some of the people who put hands on. Maybe either they just didn't have enough time with it. Maybe they're waiting to see if it's fixed in software. Maybe they genuinely just don't notice it. Or maybe some of the journalists aren't used to VR. But, you know, if I'm in a Quest 2 right now and I lean side to side, the objects in the distance look like solid objects. There's no, they don't drag or smear. And that's the kind of aspect that annoyed me. But that is software. Developers can choose to render at native 90 frames per second or native 120 frames per second. And Sony could between now and launch, or even after launch, improve the reprojection algorithm to make it less apparent. So we're talking a little bit about this right before, where we may end up doing a games cast where we specifically talk about the content that Heaney tried in this headset. But there were two things that I noted in his impressions that I just have to ask about. Horizon Call of the Mountain used a bow. And in my mind, Longbow, back on the original Vive from 2016, is still one of the best bows I've ever used in VR, right? And even the index controllers still have some of those great haptics that Valve has developed for PC VR. How do you feel the bow and the haptics of pulling back that bowstring felt compared to that? Yeah, I think it's very similar because you did have those high fidelity haptics in those Vive ones. And as you mentioned, you do have them in the index. As far as I know, the Quest 1 and Quest 2 reverted back to using basic rumble motors. And so you don't get the same fidelity that you get. And so PlayStation VR 2 is bringing that same fidelity that was once only available on those $800 or $1,000 systems down to whatever this ends up being priced at. I'll take a few questions here from the comments that I'm seeing. Daniel Kaz, how annoying is the Tether deal breaker? That's very much so a personal decision. If To me, it was annoying and it meant that I never truly got completely immersed because you could always feel the physical tether connecting you to an object in the real room and thus you always kind of knew where you were in the room. And if you're in something like The Walking Dead, Saints and Sinners, and you're spinning around and trying to slash a zombie behind you, you're going to feel that cable at times. I suspect that this will be the last widely popular tethered headset 
But if you're playing games where you're not physically spinning around, if you're the kind of person that uses the thumbstick to rotate more than use your physical body, if you're the kind of person that prefers to play seated, you're not going to care at all realistically. But yeah, if you're someone who has gotten used to wireless room scale on something like a Quest 2 and you like to walk around and rotate your body and not have to worry about a cable, this this is going to be annoying. There's no magical way that the cable is not going to feel like a cable. Yeah, a lot of people talking about the cable in the comments. Uh, Shirzad's comment, VR wasn't going mainstream without wireless headsets. That's an interesting perspective there. And it's literally what uh, Zuckerberg has said on the record where uh, he just thinks wireless is the key to the future uh, for, um, for Meta. So Desitronic saying IGN said the haptics on the bow wasn't great. Uh, there were two games that had bows. There was The Walking Dead Saints and Sinners, which didn't have haptics on its bow. And then there was Horizon Call of the Mountain, which did have haptics on it. So I'm not sure which one IGN was talking about. Lose Reviews asked, how did you find the foveated rendering? Uh, I didn't find it at all, which is a great thing. The, the Foveated rendering is one of those things that follows the phrase of, if you do something right, no one will be sure you've done anything at all. I did not notice any kind of resolution shifting as I moved my eyes around the scene. And I did ask the developers whether I was using foveated rendering, and they said yes. So... We don't know what the actual gains were. There was a kind of Unity talk a while ago that talked about it, but we'll need to obviously at launch compare because in the system settings, you can actually turn eye tracking on and off. And that's obviously for, I assume, a privacy reason if someone you know doesn't want hardware watching their eyes. And I don't know what actually would happen to a game using foveated rendering if you weren't. I assume it would just lower the resolution down to the base periphery resolution. So once we actually get this is a review unit next year that's something we'll be looking into i want to stress that what i did here was not a review it was a preview each of these demos was less than 10 minutes long so something i'm not really going to talk about for example is comfort because i personally don't believe you can really talk about the comfort of a vr headset if you only wear it for 10 minutes at a time you to know whether a headset's comfortable you need to wear it for half an hour or more in my opinion yeah that's a wonderful wonderful uh context there uh contextualizing a lot of what people really need to hear out there because uh yeah people want reviews uh as early as possible and that's not something that we can provide at this point um i might have blacked out when you said it but uh <laughs> uh the, the the haptics compared to the original vive would you say they're on par or better so i mean to me it was better to me it felt better but it could have just been the software because like I said, the most impressive haptics that I tried here was in Star Wars Tales of the Galaxy's Edge. When you're using that tool, and as you see the little, uh, I'm not sure, I'm not familiar enough with the Star Wars IP to understand what the technology is, but as you see that little circle rotate in the tool in your hand, you can feel it actually rot- rotating within your mm-hmm. hand. So it's, I, I don't think developers really took enough advantage of that on the Vive and especially the index because by the time of the index most of the hardware on Steam didn't actually support that kind of haptics so it wasn't something the developers really focused on but obviously the advantage of a console is that every developer knows that every user has this exact controller so they can take full advantage of it interesting very very interesting and uh yeah sorry go ahead so Onakazi asked if it's using full display port or if there's some kind of compression. I think someone else asked about the OLED fixed pattern noise. So there was no visible video compression of any sort. I would assume this is uncompressed, but we don't have that confirmed. The only the effect that you get that is 
quite similar to compression in terms of how your eye would perceive what you're seeing is that OLED fixed pattern noise, or some people call it the mirror effect. And if you haven't tried an OLED VR headset before, you won't really know what I'm talking about. But imagine imagine a compression that instead of, of changing as you look around the scene, is just a f- constant fixed noise on the entire panel. There are some scenes in which this is distracting, but I, I want to point out that I still think that overall, when it comes to being immersed in something like games, the advantages of OLED with that rich contrast and deep blacks outweigh the disadvantage of that fixed pattern noise. A uh, question from Michael here. Do you, do you think movies would be worthwhile to watch in this headset? Yeah, so if, if you mean like watching a movie on a virtual screen, uh, if you have something like a a high dynamic range blu-ray i don't know if that'll actually be supported or actually i don't think please playstation 5 supports that but yeah it would be good in terms of the contrast being great i don't know if you really want to wear a headset like this for a sustained amount of time especially because because of that backstrap you can't really lean back in a couch or whatever but it's certainly going to be a lot better than the playstation vr1 would have been and certainly going to be a lot better than the first generation vr headsets that a lot of people used for this yeah, we're, we're going to be entering that territory in the next few months where we have to really uh, parse apart these recommendations. I'm seeing people ask, uh, was the resolution better than Quest 2? Uh, just there, but yeah, explain answer that question. But then we've got to also tease out over time how these comparisons are really going to work out for users, where you've got the new VR user who's just coming out to this blind and, and, and wants to learn about what the benefits are of everything. And then there's the very specific people who are trying to figure out what their upgrade path is. And obviously, it's like it's almost a no-brainer if you've got a big library of PS, you know, PlayStation content uh, and you want a big upgrade from your original PSVR 1. It's going to be a no-brainer. We, we can already kind of tell that, right, Heaney? Yeah, for sure. Obviously, the question of what headset you get given on your certain situation and, you know, what console you have and what your budget, that's a completely separate question. But just to answer, you know, very specifically, is the resolution noticeably better than Quest 2? Yes, I would say it's somewhere between a Quest 2 and a HP Reverb G2, if you've ever tried that. So the Reverb G2 is definitely feels sharper than this, as you'd expect by its resolution. And thus, if the rumors are true, Quest Pro will feel higher resolution than this, at least in, you know, content like virtual uh, web browsers and things that aren't rendering 3D graphics. But this is this was still impressive. At no point in this did I feel resolution constrained. And even in large scenes where you're looking out into the distance, you know, it was visually impressive. There was, I don't think anyone playing games on this is going to have any issue with the resolution. James has been brought up around to uh, actually considering a PS5 because of this, uh, asking uh, whether the PS5 is a great 4K Ultra Blu-ray player. I, I don't I don't think it does play 4K Blu-rays. I think that was... Are you one, sure? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that was one of the scandals. It's either that it doesn't play 4K or it doesn't play HDR. It's one of the two. It definitely doesn't support 4K HDR. Mm, okay yeah i think the thing i was excited about getting uh yeah i was thinking about getting the disc one because i thought it had 4k so uh yeah correct us in the comments if we uh, if we've got that wrong someone please do but i I don't think so there was definitely a scandal around you know scandal i said there was a drama around when the playstation 5 and xbox series x launched uh that yeah it's, it's the high dynamic range that it doesn't support then um yeah, so uh, one of the thi- I think we're probably going to move on to Quest uh, Pro fairly soon. Um, and yeah, did you uh, 
I guess I'm just curious. Was the screen door effect a thing of the past here? Yeah, like I said, the resolution wasn't the issue. You'll notice that fixed pattern noise, it will be the distracting thing. It's not the screen door effect that will annoy you here. There is no, like, realistically, unless you have incredibly good eyesight and you're looking in a very bright scene to really try and find it, you're not going to be annoyed by that. It is that fixed pattern noise. But again, like I pointed out, the OLED more than makes up for that, the, the advantages of it. Yeah. Uh, build quality. A lot of people are asking, how does this feel premium-wise, I guess? Uh, if yeah, you have it a PlayStation, well put together? If you have a PlayStation 5 and a DualSense controller, it felt the same as that. It felt high quality. Not obviously you know, the type of product you'd pay 1000 or £2,000 for, but for something like a home console, uh, very high quality. Yeah, and uh, thank you for uh, Bradley. Yeah, uh, Bradley, thank you for your impressions. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, yeah, and thank you for all the comments. Keep those questions coming. We've got a lot of people tuning in today, and uh, I don't want to rush into the next subject if we have any last-minute questions. And yeah, just multiple people confirming, yeah, definitely the PS5 uh, does play 4K Blu-rays. Yeah, it doesn't play high dynamic range Blu-rays. That's the, that's the, like I said, that's the issue. So you, you couldn't really, you know, if you're saying, is this, is this, headset having a high dynamic range display going to make it good for watching hdr blu-rays no and you know i'm i'm a person who watches 4k hdr blu-rays and to me the high dynamic range is a bigger improvement than the 4k aspect it's it's interesting given that you know there are two models of ps5 right there's the uh there's the obviously discless version and the disc version uh yeah, HDR works just fine out of my uh, discless version. So, okay, someone's saying it does play 4K HDR. All I can say is it do- doesn't for me. I tried on my, you know, I tried to put a 4K HDR Blu-ray in. I can play HDR games on my PlayStation 5, but it doesn't play the Blu-rays. Maybe it's a UK ver- region thing, but it definitely works on my regular 4K HDR Blu-ray player. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> Gigo and Blu-ray. That's the disc thing, isn't it? I like that. Yeah, I... uh the headset haptics. Let's talk about that. I think we, we we brushed over that really quickly. What was? Do you think that was a big addition here? Uh, yeah. It really it really did add to the immersion when you get hit by an enemy. It you know if you get shot in a normal VR game, you get some sort of effect on your head. Maybe you get a sound effect that start, startles you a little bit. And obviously, when the right audio with the right bass, you can even get on any headset a little bit of haptics. On Quest 2, you may notice some developers do this on purpose. They play a very low frequency noise to get the headset to rumble a tiny bit. But this is on a next level. It's not the high fidelity haptics like you have in the controllers. So this isn't going to be able to do something like simulate raindrops falling on your head. But it is just a, a, a harder rumble than you would get from any speaker. So getting shot, getting physically hit by an enemy... It just adds another extra element of immersion. All right. I don't think our commenters are going to let us escape uh, this subject without you offering your thoughts on price. Uh, I I don't know. I really don't know. I don't. I know, I know it's that? one of those things where they could subsidize it and throw the number around quite a bit by subsidizing it, and that would make any guesses that we throw at, like you know, what we think the build quality is worth kind of toss it out the window but i mean yeah it's not the build quality that i would think would drive the price it's the specs in it it's the fact you have this oled display oled is usually more expensive than lcd at the same pixel density in recent years it's come down but especially if you have a a novel high dynamic range oled display like this uh 
especially if it's RGB rather than Pentile, it's going to be expensive. You have those high-fidelity haptics. Don't those PlayStation 5 gamepads cost $70 on on their own? You've got the eye tracking. You've got uh, lens separation. The original PlayStation VR didn't have that. If I had to guess, it'll either be $300 or $400, but who knows? Ooh. And our commenters are all in the $400 to $700 range. So we've got all the way from $300 to what? Let's see. It's like $700 or $800 that this thing could end up being, uh, according to our audience here. I think we're ready to move on to the other major monster news this week, unless there's any last things. And maybe we'll come back to it. There's a lot of context to give uh, now that we've got such good looks uh, at some of these upcoming products. So over the weekend, the MetaQuest Pro design was leaked. This was a very, very fascinating story to try to dive into and figure out what was going on. Heaney, why don't you provide us a little summary of what happened here? Yeah, so this was a really, really weird one. Some guy, a hotel worker, posts images of the packaging of Quest Pro out of nowhere. And it shows that it's an engineering sample with the label, you know, not for resale. And obviously a lot of people were skeptical that this was, you know, a made-up story, that these images were fake. So he posted a video. He posted a video of him unboxing the headset, taking it out. He didn't turn it on or set it up, but he pretty much confirmed the design that we've all been hearing about for uh, months now from leaks. I don't think this was really as substantial as a leak as something like the iPhone 4, some people have suggested, because this is an officially announced product. Project Cambria was announced 11 months ago. Meta has confirmed you know, many of its features over the past 11 months. Leakers and analysts have revealed pretty much every spec of this product. So what this really did was just confirm to anyone who didn't believe the leaks to date that yeah, they actually are true. This it really is called Quest Pro. It really does have this slim design. It really does have these controllers, and it's coming next month. Yeah, you know, of all the things that Meta has kind of hidden uh, out of this release is the the name. So MetaQuest Pro was one of those things that uh, a year ago, uh, at some point, I think Andrew Bosworth uh, referred to a Quest Pro in an interview. So the name was out there, but they've since uh, gone to calling a Project Cambria at every corner. And there are a fair number of developers that are close watchers of this space who really believed that Meta should take another path with the naming and name a new product line to differentiate this product line from the existing Quest. But inside of Meta and inside all of their rebranding efforts, it really makes sense to attach it to Quest because it is going to run Quest games, right? That's the one of the things they've come out and made very clear, that it definitely runs Quest games. Now, I interviewed uh, the leaker uh, on Monday. I was very curious uh, about the story, about how this ended up in their hands. And we've got the video in our uh, timeline. If you go back, uh, what, two videos into our uh, past on the Upload VR channel, I've got a 20-minute interview with this person. And, you know, I'm, I'm personally, the reason I reached out and wanted to talk to this person is I saw all these stories uh getting you know all these conclusions being made 
with people uh, basically getting half the information. Uh, and I'm seeing it even in our comments where this was, you know, there's there's the sense that this was a purposeful leak uh, out of Meta. And I, I have to disagree with that. I, I don't think there's any evidence to indicate that this was purposefully done by Meta or Facebook. I even kind of broached that subject with uh, Romero, uh, the hotel worker who uh, found this. Uh, and a, a key bit of, you know, the story that he gave about it is he says he was doing the rounds at his job where it's a, a long-term stay hotel. And part of the things they do at this hotel is they clear the hallways of trash. People bring trash and put it in the hallway for it to be discarded and picked up. And there was this bag in the hallway that he opened up and found uh, a quest inside uh, that uh, he was a, a quest owner. You know, it's still crazy in my head. I still want to know more about the story, but you know, as we've been talking about it this week, you know, it's not that important really in the grand scheme of things. That what is important, what is interesting here is now we know uh, what this thing looks like in the wild and uh, that it's officially called the Quest Pro. So there's not a whole lot of uh, more to this. But I, I am so impressed with what looks like the build quality here, Heaney. Everyone that kind of looked at this realizes that it does look a lot slimmer a lot more compact and even the the hardware itself looks very well put together so uh i'm i'm just i'm gonna go out there and say that i don't think this was a purposeful leak out of meta and i will be i've i have reached out to them to find out uh definitively if this these devices ended up back in the correct hands because there is still the question of how did this device end up in that hallway to begin with and uh, after it ended up back in the hands of whoever was staying in that room or in that hotel, uh, you know, was it, you know, in the proper hands to begin with before this uh, hotel worker found it. So, um, yeah, I'm, the thing that you, you, we put these two stories together, right, Heaney? We've got PSVR 2 now, hands-on impressions, and we've seen how slim and high quality this device looks. Do we think by the time that PSVR 2 is ac actually out there, it's going to feel outdated compared to this? Uh, no, no. I mean, this is going to be at a very, very different price point than PlayStation VR 2, and it's going to offer a very different experience and be focused on a completely different audience. What we know from Meta is that this is going to be significantly more than $800. And so, you know, people have thrown around the idea of prices along the lines of $1,200, $1,500, and even I think the highest estimate of PlayStation VR 2 by, you know, what estimate I say guess is around $600. Personally, like I said, I, I think we're going to see around three to 400. And obviously, yes, this is wireless, but it's, it's still running on a mobile phone processor. It's not going to be able to provide anywhere near the graphical fidelity that you find in PlayStation VR 2. And that was one of the things I kind of noted in my ex experience that the graphical fidelity of these familiar titles, like The Walking Dead, Saints and Sinners, like Star Wars Tales from the Galaxy's Edge, it felt like a almost completely different experience on PS5. And ILM XLab actually noted that they remade a lot of the graphics for Galaxy's Edge just for PlayStation 5. 
But what this is going to be focused on is a very different market. This is focused on remote work. The idea that it can be a triple screen Chromebook that you can carry around in a small bag. So you put on the headset, you have a full color pass through room of your view, and you can have triple monitors. You can connect your keyboard by a Bluetooth and see it tracked and uh, take it on the go with you. That you can use it for remote meetings because of the face and eye tracking. Uh, when you're in something like Horizon Workrooms or another remote uh, meeting tool, you can really see the facial expressions of your coworkers. You can, and you know the advantages of that over a Zoom call. We talk about all the time on this show that instead of seeing this kind of grid of webcams in front of you with no spatial direction and all coming from the same audio source, you hear your coworker on the left to your left and you turn to your left to talk to them. You see your coworker on the right and you hear them from that direction and you can all gather around a a virtual whiteboard and draw on it or kind of cast up content in a way that just doesn't work on Zoom calls. That's the focus for this headset as well as mixed reality. The idea that you'll have content and games and experiences that take place in your real room as the setting or at least using the basic geometry of your real room. That's not something PlayStation VR 2 is offered or focusing on, especially given its pass-through is black and white. What PlayStation VR 2 is focused on is these high-fidelity, immersive, huge games like Resident Evil Village and Horizon Call of the Mountain. So I, I almost think that to many consumers, these are not even going to be thought of as any kind of competition. They're just completely different categories of devices for different use cases. Oof. Uh, I, 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 I get it, but I kind of disagree to a certain extent. You know, there's a lot of people on the fence. You know, you think about these millions and millions of people who investigate VR maybe once every six months or you know, even two years, they sort of tried something a couple of years ago and were like, eh, and then they uh, come around to it and actually cross paths with a VR headset or info about VR a couple of years later. And they want to survey the landscape and know where their entry point is going to be. And up until now, Quest and everything Meta has done has been to find the minimum viable product that can reach a very large audience. And that's what we saw with Quest 1. We saw it sharpened with Quest 2. But uh, they killed the Rift, right? The Rift S product line. Like, it's just non-existent. They went and focused on this. And that was something that existed in kind of a different place. It had a premium audio solution. Its audio was really, really great. Uh, it obviously required a PC to run, but that was beside the point at that point. It's just this is them returning to having a completely different, you know, a premium high-end product. And yes, it exists in a different product space, but the conversation for those entry-level people who are just discovering it for the first time changes in a pretty substantial way where previously it was like, oh, well, if you have a Quest or if you're thinking about Quest, it's it's wireless, it's bulky, and uh but it's got some amazing games. But here, if you've got a PS4, you can go and upgrade to a PSVR. That's a, a makes sense. Now you've got this other thing where you get all the benefits as standalone in a premium product that you know you didn't have that before. It became easier for us to point to an index or a PSVR as an upgrade uh, in certain for certain people in certain respects compared to these other products. Now that's no the, the high end is covered too by standalone. So I'm I'm really it's going to be uh you know price is going to figure into this in substantially. 
So yeah, it's it's high end from a headset perspective. You know, the displays are by all the rumors high end. It has the face and eye tracking. It's slim and comfortable. Reportedly, it has these advanced self tracking controllers. All of that is high end, but it's still being run by a cell phone processor. It's still not high end in terms of the graphical fidelity that it delivers. And standalone can never, barring some magical technological breakthrough, never bridge that gap without cloud streaming or without a PC, which most people don't have. Most people that buy these things don't have a gaming PC. If you have a gaming PC, then obviously that's a very different question as to what you would purchase. And I don't know, you know, people who have a play, a gaming PC probably aren't going to go out and get a PlayStation 5 anyway, regardless of what PlayStation VR 2 offers. But when it comes to the mo- most people out there who have neither a PlayStation 5 nor a PC, that's the majority of people, including the majority of technology consumers, the decision is going to be, do I get a Quest 2 or at $400 or a Pico 4 at whatever it lands up, or do I get a PlayStation 5 and a PlayStation VR 2? For the vast majority of people, Quest Pro just won't factor into it because the price just won't make sense. Mm. Yeah, lots of lots of really interesting discussion there, and people responding to uh, Heaney's analysis here makes a lot of sense. Uh Let's see. There was one person, I'm just going to throw it out there because it was from a commenter, not from me, suggesting that if PSVR 2 supports PC, it's all <laughs> over. But I didn't say it. It was a commenter. So I'm not going to take the question. Yeah, so for, for a context for anyone who's new to this podcast, Ian and I, this is our, our biggest disagreement. Ian, I'm, I, I don't want to represent your position for you, but Ian, I'd say you believe that PlayStation VR 2 has a viable path to coming to PC, whereas I think it's extremely unlikely. Yeah. I think it would benefit. Uh, I think it would be. I think it would benefit Sony and a company like uh, Valve to 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 find an agreement there. Uh, you know, part of my thinking here is, uh, you know, I've I've hit this drum a lot on our show where I think the time is uh, here for a lot of un, unexpected cooperation between some of the biggest platform companies. So. Uh, I've been looking at, uh, there's been rumors out there about Fortnite, uh, and we've been looking at what's been going on with uh, Meta moving out of PC VR uh, in various ways, right? Like just not updating their PC VR stack in a long time. It makes a lot of sense for there to be different types of cooperation. And then on the other side of things, you've got Valve that is years away potentially from being able to do a standalone product. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they've been working on it really hard and they're ready to do standalone soon. We've got Bradley in our comments who has been uh, chasing that dream uh, for a long time. But, you know, if Valve isn't able to get a standalone product in the near term, and the same is true for Sony being able to get a standalone product ready for PlayStation, it is, Maybe it hurts them short term, but if they can come up with some cooperation here, it benefits them uh, in ways that they kind of need to match, I think, to to compete against this. So, no, I I don't think it's necessarily a viable path. I'm just very hopeful that it happens, I suppose. And so the disagreement is that I would say, as I think some commenters have said here, that it's actually – not beneficial for Sony at all. They don't need to compete with this because it's a 1200 or 1500 or whatever product that doesn't appeal to the vast majority of their target customers. For Sony, PlayStation VR 
was a value add to the PlayStation 4 and PlayStation VR 2 is a value add to PlayStation 5. It's one of those features that makes someone choose PlayStation over Xbox. It's one of those things that makes them come to the platform. And if we're talking about, just so we're talking about what will PlayStation VR 2 be priced at, if Sony does want to subsidize it, then they're not making money off the hardware. Where are they making the money? Off the of selling you those games, be they you know $50, $60, $70. Sony takes a cut of those games. They wouldn't be making money if it if they're selling a headset for you to go and use on PC, not to mention the cost that they would have to invest. They would have to port their tracking system from PlayStation 5 to PC. They would have to support it if they want to do this officially. They'd have to provide technical support for people trying to use this on all sorts of computers. They'd have to provide an adapter because this is a single USB-C cable. You can't plug that into your GPU or you know maybe they could have it compressed like like Quest 2 is across uh, the USB cable. But again, that would then require an entire other technical stack they would have to build out. And again, for what advantage? There's just no advantage to Sony here. Whereas, yes, there's an advantage for Valve, but Valve doesn't make those sort of partnerships. It doesn't want to spend that kind of money. I don't know. It's it's nuts to me to think that Half-Life Alex uh, will be playable on... I mean, th- obviously, we know that Half-Life Alex could be ported to the PlayStation Store, but then my question becomes, how does that benefit uh, Valve? I guess that's the lowest hanging fruit for Valve is to add another storefront and get another couple, you know, another... That, that'll, that game will sell well on the PlayStation Store. But I just think longer term, uh, there's there's benefits to larger thinking about these platforms. So I don't well, know. It, um, it benefits Valve in that they would then make more money off the Half-Life Alex investment. Yeah. They've already sold it to all the Index and Quest 2 buyers that want to buy it. So why not sell it to these uh, upcoming PlayStation buyers? Yeah. It's just the platform. If you really buy into the hype that the metaverse is the future, you need to have interoperability at a different level. And I'm seeing commenters point out, yeah, PSVR on the on PC, the original PSVR on PC was a terrible experience. You can still find it in the hardware charts where they're like uh, 0.1% or something ridiculous of PC VR users who have hacked it together to get it onto a PC. Uh, what we're talking about is the potential of more robust actual support. And it is uh, a very big dream that's very unlikely to ever happen. But I still think you have to think about these things in the context of uh, are you building a platform that's going to exist in 15 years, right? And uh, interoperability between some of the biggest companies at fundamental layers uh, is, is, I think, what's kind of needed uh, at this point, different from the past. But are we ready to move on to the next subject with HTC? Yeah, let's talk about HTC. If yeah, so HTC is releasing face and eye tracking add-ons for the Vive Focus 3. This uh, was unexpected and came uh, was announced uh, right before this headset leaked out there. And uh, Heaney, why don't you run us through those prices there and how this works? Yeah, so this is very interesting timing coming one month before the launch of Quest Pro. Uh, so... HTC, if you're not aware, has their own standalone headset. It's not a direct competitor to Quest 2. It's called Vive Focus 3. Instead, they sell it to businesses. And 
it compared to Quest 2, it has a better weight balance in that the battery is actually in the back. It has much higher resolution. It's actually higher res- resolution than pretty much any consumer headset except for the Vario Aero. It's higher resolution than uh, Reverb G2. It's higher resolution than PlayStation VR 2. It actually has wider field of view as well than something like Quest 2. The field of view of this, when I tried it, felt very similar to the PlayStation VR 2. So they sell this for $12.99. And the problem is that Meta, as we all know, based on the leak we just talked about, is coming out with its own pro headset next month. And Meta's headset has a few features that this doesn't have, or at least didn't have until this week. Namely, face and eye tracking. So HTC's strategy here has been, instead of launching an entirely new headset, they have come up with a rather clever way to upgrade this thing with two accessories, an eye tracker and a face tracker. The eye tracker is $250 and the facial tracker is $100. So the total price of this headset with both of those add-ons is $1647, roughly, you know, $1650, $1650. But I really do think how they did this was very clever. So the eye tracker actually attaches in under the facial interface with a with this magnetic attachment and then it connects to the USB-C port on the side. So once you put this in, it really feels as if almost the product was built for it, other than having that little cable out the side. The face tracker is similarly clever. It attaches to the secondary USB-C port. That's something that Vive Focus 3 had, but no one was really sure what was the point. Now you know what the point is. It's actually just under the, just above where your nose is, and thus this can just slot in and feel almost native. The question is, how would this really compare to Quest Pro from the perspective that from the perspective of a professional or business looking to buy a headset, this has higher resolution. This has wider field of view. This has a swappable battery at the at the back. If you run out of battery on this thing, you just swap in the next battery. But what it lacks is color pass-through. This is not a mixed reality device. And Quest Pro is both a virtual reality device and a mixed reality device. So it's questionable what whether this can really compete with quest pro in all aspects but at least if you're just talking about virtual reality when it comes to things like remote meetings htc really has come up with something that can compete you know a lot of our commenters are making the joke uh htc who what is it what are they from the 90s uh that's you know that's actually the the context that i have in my head for the whole section before where htc had an incredible product powered by valve in its first generation so uh for those that aren't aware the backstory there is that uh, valve and oculus were actually pretty closely aligned working together and cooperating in those early days there was actually one of the or multiple i don't know uh, of the rooms that valve had developed to demonstrate sort of room scale tracking uh very early on installed at uh, oculus uh in the early days and then they obviously parted and went different directions and then valve went and teamed up with htc to deliver this room scale system with controllers all basically built to valve's spec so that original vive is all built according to what valve said it should have and then over the next two years as these products uh the oculus rift and the vive uh the original vive went against each other facebook just cut the price of its system by an extraordinary degree, right? They just chopped down the price by like $50 every few months 
and added even more stuff to the box. So you could get the same features that you got out of the Vive out of a Rift. You could get room scale tracking, get the hand controllers. And the original system from Facebook didn't have that. And now we have this company here that only competes in the business space, right? They're, they're, they've been pushed out of consumer contention in most markets. And that's what I, I'm thinking about when I talk about this next wave with PSVR 2 and uh, others competing with Meta now having both a low-end product and a high-end product. Valve came back, right, with a high-end product to compete with the Valve Index at the high-end. Uh, what are we going to – how are these companies going to compete in this next generation is – and I'm just I'm I'm this is almost like a warning story getting pushed out of the consumer market in my head. Yes, yeah, so just two small pieces of context. All right, I'd that that is a good overview of the history. But one thing I would add is that back in that room you're talking about that Valve installed an Oculus, what happened was that then Facebook poached or you know hired whatever you want to refer to it. A lot of the people who were in that room, so it's almost like a ship of Theseus question of what really was Valve and what really was Oculus because so many of Valve's key VR employees then moved over to Facebook to launch eventually that rift. And also, yes, the price was a major aspect of how Facebook took on the HTC Vive, but it was also the content. It was the fact that they were just constantly releasing games that either were exclusive, though you could obviously hack around that, or just worked best with those touch controllers, which were very different. So even when you did try to you know, use tools to play that, you could tell that those games were designed. And so that was something that I, I really... This has always been my problem with Valve's VR strategy in that they just won't fund the content that's required to really push out their platform. It, it, with the HTC Vive, it was there were uh, years where there was a complete content drought after the launch. With the Valve Index, they pretty much released Half Life Alex and one demo, you know, the the Portal demo, and that was it. They just left the headset there. They talked about three games. They never arrived. And when we talk about the future and we talk about Valve's potential future standalone, they really need to correct this. They cannot just do their strategy of putting out the hardware and building a store and hoping developers fix it for them. They need to pay developers to make content for this. They, Valve is a multi-billion dollar company. It's one of the reportedly one of the most profitable per head companies in the history of the world. They have the money to do this. If they want to push VR, they can. But the the cold hard fact is that from what we've heard in some reports internally, the leadership of Valve does not believe in VR as much as many people wish they did. And that's something that hopefully is changing now mm. that Quest 2 has proved out of market. That's, that's, uh, I don't know if we've got the reporting or the sourcing to back that up, but I, I get it. It's more, uh, going back to that ship of Theseus, uh, analogy you brought up where, uh, Valve brought, you know, Valve had, uh, Michael Abrash and the team, that was doing uh, a lot of the hard work. And I think they met, you know, this is me guessing here because I don't, I don't have the exact rundown, but I think Abrash went and met with Zuckerberg and convinced him that you needed a, uh, a project on the scale of like building the nuclear bomb uh, to, to, to uh, develop all the technologies needed to realize VR. So, you had this this conversation that happened where uh, Zuckerberg said yes, right? Uh, Abrash came over. He built a research studio up in uh, Seattle. 
that uh, hired some of the best researchers in the world to develop the technologies that would bring VR to fruition over the long term. So uh, codec avatars, uh, verifocal lenses, uh, even inside-out tracking. I'm not sure which teams actually developed that uh, over, over the long term. But these long-term ideas got developed by this team that was brought over from Valve. And so you had a disagreement there of just the level of investment needed in the specific year, right? And I think there's, there's a very reasonable argument to be made that Valve would realize that if you spend that much money and try to hire that many people, uh, you're going to change a lot of the culture. You're going to make. You're going to cause uh, a lot of going off in a lot of weird directions. Uh, you might not be the same company after you do that. So, you know, not believing in VR and not believing that now is the right time to invest tens of billions of dollars are two entirely different things to think about there. Yeah, but you. I mean, look at the evidence. Through look at what Valve has. Not what it said, but what it's actually released over the past year. Look at the lack of games. Look at the fact that they talked about an index wireless adapter for years and it never came. Look at the front of the index. It was clearly something that was supposed to happen there and it never launched. The, 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 maybe there is some sort of, sort of conceptual commitment to VR, but it's not apparent in anything Valve's done yet. And I really hope that they come along with Deckard and prove me wrong and show that they've completely changed their mind. And they do really release three AAA VR games this time forward. And then, you know, release some sort of service game that people really care about over time. But that's just not been Valve's focus. Yeah, really, really interesting discussion. We're ready to move on to the next one. Which yeah, is I think the, the final conclusion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think the conclusion here we just kind of make is that HTC Vive, their brand is very different than when they were working with Valve. They've gone off in a different direction. They're still kind of riding the coattails of that association, but today they're. I, I don't want to be too negative here because HTC Vive is actually very successful in the business space. There are a ton of businesses that are using its headsets uh, every day and using it for really meaningful things. And as some of the commenters have pointed out here, they're also used in VR arcades. This thing supports co-located tracking. So, you know, you can have the tracking spaces of multiple headsets matched up, which meant, which VR arcades are starting to use. It supports Wi-Fi 6E, 6 gigahertz PC streaming, which arcades are starting to use to replace the backpacks. This HTC is a successful VR company, just not in the consumer space. The question obviously is, as Quest Pro launches, how much will Meta start to encroach into HTC's market in the business space? Let's talk about this next one where we have been hounding uh, Valve for uh, multiple times, multiple months, trying to figure out what is going on here with their Steam hardware surveys VR section, which has shifted with dramatic numbers that didn't seem plausible and required us to kind of question whether we should cite them any longer. They actually delivered us a statement and updated their numbers. So this was very, very cool to finally receive and get some detail there about what's actually going on. Uh, Heaney, why don't you run us through what happened with these numbers and why we cite them? Yeah, so as you can see in this chart here, uh, the Steam hardware survey, if you're not familiar with it, it is a collation of the operating system, the components, and the VR headsets that the people of Steam are using, the users of Steam. It is offered randomly as a sample, and you can choose to accept, and if you accept, it will upload your statistics, and Valve then collates them. The problem is 
that in this key statistic that we follow, this percentage of Steam users with a VR headset, there has been some wild fluctuations this year that don't make any sense. The, the, the number of Steam users with a VR headset went in May from, you know, 2% that it's been solidly at to 3 point something percent. It then went up above 6%. And we were reaching out to Valve each time and saying, you know, what's happening here? Can you explain this? Is this a glitch? Are you going to fix this? Is there any information you can provide us? And we would just weren't getting any answer. So a few weeks ago, I wrote an article saying that the Steam Hardware Survey's VR section has become unreliable, that we're no longer going to be using it for our analysis. And I explained the reasons why based on this. And it was some of the other statistics within it were fluctuating too. A few days later, lo and behold, I'm not suggesting there was a connection here. It could be a coincidence, but it did seem like a pretty strange coincidence. Valve gets in touch with us to say, uh, sorry about this. We've actually fixed the data now, and they sent us the corrected data for the past few months, and that they have identified collection and analysis issues with the survey that they are that they have fixed so that going forward, these issues shouldn't happen again. And I will bring up what these, this data looks like with the corrected uh, data that we have provided because it really paints a very different picture than what the previous data did. Here you go. As you can see, PC VR is still growing extremely slowly and relative to the growth of normal PC gaming is actually stagnating. And this is something that is in very stark contrast to standalone VR that we know is growing at an extremely high rate. I really wonder next year, how will the entry of PlayStation VR enter into this mix? I suspect that PlayStation VR 2, if it does get major games from Sony and you know developers port their titles to it, and this hybrid games concept of AAA games being able to let you jump in in VR when you want and jump back into your couch when you don't want, I suspect PlayStation VR 2 will become the new home of high-end, high-fidelity VR. And until some major platform holder, be it Valve, be it Meta, be it you know Epic, or be it Microsoft themselves, the, you know they did have a little VR venture on Windows for a while. PC VR is going to continue to stagnate. It will continue to be a great place to play indie games, to play simulators that I love. I play more PC VR than standalone before anyone starts saying I hate PC VR. I do play more, but it's the cold hard fact of this data and of the games that have actually been released in the past two years is that this is a stagnant market and it needs a player to come in and inject some energy to it. But, but here it was below 2%, Heaney, and here it's above 2%. That's that's, that's massive growth. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's the release of Half-Life Alex right there. And <laughs> since then, what's somebody tell me, what's been the major PC VR game that's, that's sold uh, headsets uh, since Half-Life Alex? No, I'm not disagreeing with you there. Uh, the, the, thing I, the context I guess I want to throw at this, uh, going back to some of our previous discussion, is the looming prospect of augmented reality AR, right? Uh, moving past the debate over terminology, you've got this idea that when you put on a VR headset, you're completely cut off from the outside world. That is true of VR in the 2010s. Uh, but we are at this stage where computer vision and uh, yeah, computer vision has advanced to a level where uh, we are we are starting to get color pass through on VR headsets. We're getting AR on VR headsets. And I'm seeing a lot of people bring up Apple in our comments. Uh, we're not, we don't have a big Apple story this week to discuss, but that is a looming uh, monster company uh, coming here into this space very soon. 
And Tim Cook, the CEO over there, has talked again and again and again about the power of AR in the long term. So I think there's there's a couple things that have been really interesting over this last year. Uh, Galia, I think, is the name of the add-on. Galia was going to combine it was a, it was a brain reading interface a, uh, a basically all these other sensors would be put on top of your head to sense a lot more about you paired with a valve index and almost at the last minute it turned out that this galia uh, brain reading device actually partnered with vario instead of index and this device costs a car, right? It's, it's, it's so expensive. You buy this headset instead of a car. And there are comments from people at Valve, of Gabe Newell in particular, talking about the potential of brain reading and all the data that you can use from those brain reading interfaces to drive game design in interesting and new ways. So there's like... I'm reminded of something that I think Jerry Ellsworth told me. So Jerry Ellsworth is the CEO of Tilt 5, and we've got some videos and stories on our channel talking about Tilt 5. Tilt 5 is, to me, the most interesting true AR product on the market right now. It still requires a PC, an external computing device to operate, but you have a very wide field of view on this table in front of you when you wear these glasses, and you have a cool very specific gaming interface. But she was at Valve back in the early days working for them, and she got fired one day and uh, took basically asked Valve to take her technology out of Valve. And years later, uh, we have Tilt 5 as the, the, the second or you know the seventh generation, depending how you count it, of this AR approach. But she talked about how pass-through VR, pass-through AR on a VR headset always has a weird feel to it, that it never quite feels right. And I'm, I'm extremely curious to see when we will get, I, you know, I still haven't experienced it personally, a pass-through AR experience on a VR headset that I'm going to want to have more than 20 minutes inside. Are we going to so- get there with Apple Reality? So, I mean, honestly, I, I, I don't understand where Jerry's coming from there because I've tried multiple headsets that didn't have the weird feeling she's talking about. When I tried the pass-through on PlayStation VR 2 on Friday, it was it felt great. It felt high quality. There was no distortion. It was black and white, but other than that, it was fine. At CES in January, I tried Lynx, the upcoming mixed reality headset. It felt great. It almost felt like, not from a clarity perspective, from because obviously the headset has limited resolution, but from a distortion and kind of scale perspective, it felt almost as if I wasn't looking through a lens. I knew I was because of the display, but the actual correction is a, I wouldn't say it's a solved problem, but it's a solvable problem in the, in the day. And, you know, today we have computer vision algorithms that are very capable at reconstructing different views into the view that you're looking for. I just don't see that that's really going to be a problem. And I think once Quest Pro comes out and maybe Pico 4, if the rumors of it having color pass through are true, and links, we'll see for sure. Maybe some people's eyes are more sensitive to this than mine. Maybe it's just different depth perception affects this. But to me, all of those systems felt fine. Uh, coming back to the Steam hardware survey here, uh, the topic, someone was 
asking, you know, has the number of Steam users stayed fixed? Because 2% of an increasing number is different from 2% of a fixed number. You're absolutely right. That's why I said relative to the growth of PC gaming. It's not that PC VR isn't growing. It's just that it's growing at effectively the same rate as PC gaming. So PC VR is not becoming more popular. Whether you think that's an issue depends on what you want PC VR for. If you just want to play mods, if you want to play indie games, you want to play the occasional simulator, that's fine. The problem is that this 2% figure is not interesting enough to big developers to go out and release PC VR games. You know, you notice that before I said we need a platform holder to invest. That's because for a big publisher to want to really spend their own money to build a AAA PC VR game, there has to be a large market for it. It's simple economics. They have to make back their investment. 2% is on the same level as how many people have Linux. When's the last time you saw a made-from-the-ground-up AAA game for Linux? I don't mean one that added support. I mean one that was built around it. Obviously, that you know, it's not a, not a similar analogy, but the point here is that this number needs to get a lot bigger for publishers to want to build, bring games to PC VR. If you're a PC VR gamer who wants to see the kind of games that we're going to see come next year to PlayStation VR 2, if you want to see the, the likes of a Horizon franchise title that we know is coming to PlayStation VR 2, this needs to get bigger, and it's not going to get bigger at the current strategy of these platform holders. Yeah, and I'm seeing uh, Adam Hartzell getting exactly where I was going in my uh, my head, where he's he's talking about speaking of mods, the flat to VR universal e- UE4 VR in- injector is going to be awesome, and I'm also thinking of the Half Life Two VR mod that is rolling out this week. You know, there is an opportunity there. I've I've seen devs complain again and again about uh, the curation of the Steam store and how it uh, has just done a horrible job of sort of uh, promoting made-for-VR content. Uh, I saw, I think, Denny, uh, the CEO of Cloudhead Games, make this comment begging kind of for a section of the store specifically for ports and stuff that is not like uh, made specifically necessarily for VR. I think there's a lot of, you know, if we get something that's built on Steam Deck, that's built for VR in a standalone, you should see an overhaul of that system where, you know, like, I, I'm. it's amazingly cool that you can go and get all these classic games uh, ported to a quest right now using side quests to bring over the content onto... Um, onto a quest so you can have all these classic game experiences uh inside of a quest that were not originally made for vr i think that's an obvious market for steam to try to push itself into as soon as they get there we ready to move on to disney because i think disney is another good company to talk about with this shift uh from ar to vr potentially so uh earlier this week uh or last week, really, Disney had its big D23 conference where they announced all their upcoming content and uh, efforts. And uh, one of the things that happened here was uh, Disney's CEO spoke with a reporter from Deadline and made a very interesting comment about their long-term thoughts. Heaney, do you want to provide us a quick summary of what was said? 
yeah, the last thing I was going to say, though, it, just on that last topic is, you know, you're talking about Denny from Cloudhead Games. That's the perfect example of someone I wish Valve would give a couple of million dollars to build a real PC VR game. It's crazy to me that they, they got this studio with years of experience in building VR games that made the gallery, that now made Pistol Whip, and they had this big headset launch with Index. And what did they get them to build? A five-minute tech demo. Why on earth wouldn't it, one of yeah. the richest companies in gaming give them the money to build a real full game? And I think I heard Denny complain, or not complain, sorry, Denny, Denny talk about the fact that other platform holders haven't really been interested in coming to give them money. It's just astonishing to me that no one realizes that if you give these experienced developer studios the money to build a full game, they can build games that will sell systems. Yeah, I wonder how much it speaks to sign of sort of the relationships that some of the big publishers have, right? You know, it, there's a lot of weight that gets thrown around when you say a, a very big major publisher is entering VR versus uh, a unknown name uh, relative to that, like Cloudhead. But the mistake there is that Cloudhead has incredible experience delivering content to VR headsets where the, these big publishers, developers, don't have that. It benefits the developers, the big publishers, to get that experience. But at the end of the day, you get a what is usually a substandard product compared to this experienced team. And yeah, he needs, he needs right on the money there that we should have seen some of these smaller developers uh, funded with their dream projects and bring them to PC VR. It, it seems like a really easy win. All right. So let's talk about Disney. Disney has a very long history talking about the prospect of AR and VR, and they've dabbled in VR in various respects for decades. Uh, they had, uh, even attractions, uh, Disney Quest back uh, going into the 90s. And I think Jesse Shell of Shell Games is one of those developers who was a former Imagineer and worked on some of the Disney things back in the day and now is making uh, really great VR games that are built from the ground up for VR. And uh, my first story, I think, one of my first stories about virtual reality before uh, I went into it full time was about Disney using VR headsets to imagine their physical spaces before they actually built them so they have they had these caves you could go in these full scale rooms and you could see what a uh, room looked like a space a land uh before they actually built it uh and then of course for home vr users disney has done vader immortal they've done uh, galaxies uh, tales from galaxy's edge and there's even a hubs experience that is on steam right now that is a very badly reviewed where you can get to some of the 360 video experiences that uh, disney attempted over the years there's the void experiences which were incredible but also a little bit clunky because of all those extra things you had to tack on to your body to to have a void experience now Disney has made the hint that near term, they're going to look at Oculus and potentially have versions of their attractions for people who can't actually make it to a physical park. What do you think of all this, Heaney? Yeah, so you know the, the, the interviewer was the one that brought up Oculus. They said goggles like Oculus, and the CEO of Disney said short-term, yes, long-term, maybe some Thing, sorry, long-term, maybe not, maybe something more. I do think that quote is so interesting that he gave of the target market for this would be the 90% of people that will never, ever be able to get to a Disney park. And this is one of the kind of core pitches of virtual reality in general, that 
if you're a relatively affluent person in a first world country, there are a lot of experiences, you know, like skiing or diving in a coral reef or driving a race car that you can do in real life. And when someone pitches the idea of doing this in virtual reality, a lot of people's first reaction is, why would you want to virtually do that when you can do it for real? And many people may say that about these Disney rides. Why would you want to virtually do it when you can go to Disneyland? And as the CEO of Disney pointed out, and as I think one of John Carmack often points this out, if you look on a global scale, the majority of people cannot ever do any of these experiences in real life because of the situation they're in. If, they, if they're if they relatively poor in a large mega city, like a lot of the world's population lives. So Today, they already engage in escapism, just like all of us do. They already watch, we all already watch Netflix shows for hours on end. We already in, engage ourselves in video games, whether it be phone games or on a console or on a PC. All that virtual reality will do in this sense is make it so that that escapism is deeper, more immersive, and can more closely match the real experience. As the, that Disney CEO points out, these rides that people could only ever read about or watch videos of will, can actually then be experienced by a majority of people. Obviously, today, headsets are still relatively expensive on a global scale, $400. But the first iPhone in the equivalent when you took it out of its contract bundle, and if you factor in modern inflation, would, would have cost somewhere between two and $3,000 if you were to be able to buy it on its own, which you weren't. And today, you can buy an $80 Android phone that does everything better than that original iPhone and does way many more features and is by far the better device. Had you handed, if you handed an $80 Android phone today to someone in 2007 picking up their first iPhone, they would almost not have believed how incredible it is compared to that first iPhone. So a similar trend will likely happen with virtual reality. Over time, we'll get headsets that are cheaper and cheaper that allow people all over the world to access experiences that they never otherwise would. And that's the market that this CEO seems to be eyeing. Yeah, I think of things like uh, what is happening in Walkabout Mini Golf. They rolled out the Labyrinth course over the summer based on the 1980s movie Labyrinth with David Bowie. And it's a theme park, right? It's a, it's a mini golf theme park. And with mini golf, you're, you're not really interacting physically with the environment too much. You're just hitting a golf ball. So it, it's like a match made in heaven. It's a certain type of theme park that really works well with not having the physical environment. But I, there's actually a review of me trying out the uh, Star Wars Rise of the Resistance uh, experience at Disneyland. And if you've ever been there, it's one of the best theme park attractions that I've ever seen. And there's just all this physicality in that experience where uh, you've got real stormtroopers uh, right in front of you, these, you know, menacing costumes uh, standing everywhere and like they're shuffling you around through these hallways and you back your your you back up against a real wall uh because you're kind of scared and you feel your back pressing up against it uh you know those sorts of things are absent from so much of these these possibilities in the near term and uh, it is the real benefit of going to the physical location people are arguing about the price here in the comments uh yeah, I think that's the thing that's going to happen over time, right? Uh, things like that's why I'm so interested in Walkabout Mini Golf uh, as a platform for these properties where uh, you're not going to go and play mini golf very often with your friends. You're not going to be able to get them to make the time for it, to schedule, to have the gas, to go to another location. You can actually just 
go into VR at a moment's notice and play with somebody else. That's that's the the ultimate promise of platforms like Horizon that are getting pushed so hard by Meta, where uh, it doesn't matter the device in your hand, you can still have a social experience with somebody else that is very, very close to the physical thing. But I think it's it's really interesting to hear this verbiage out of Disney uh, because they had a different CEO uh, for a very long time, and now they've got this new leadership, and you've you've got a, a history of a relationship between Meta and Disney, where they've funded a lot of projects to begin with. We'll be very curious to see just how Disney enters into this space in this next phase. They've done a lot of experiments so far. Now, how are they going to actually turn it into a you know, a, another tentpole part of their business is going to be really interesting to watch because uh, if you if you want if you want competition for Meta, Disney is like the the largest company on the world. They they don't make hardware, but they are just a monster of a company that uh, is going to do some very interesting things in the company coming years. I think. Yeah, I'd imagine Disney's place here in this market will be very much so on the content level from the interview it sounds like this is something that would be a part of disney plus so you would have this disney plus vr app that you know presumably will let you watch all of the regular 2d content but then also let you access all of this immersive content disney just owns such a huge range of ips that you could easily see them having some sort of you know metaverse platform themselves where you can kind of access all of these different worlds from in this one app uh, gated behind that Disney Plus subscription that they're trying to keep pushing. And I would expect they're not going to try and lock this to any particular headset. We've already seen, you know, Vader Immortal and Ga- Tales from the Galaxy's Edge come from Quest to PlayStation VR. We'll likely see Disney want to be on Apple Reality, to be on Meta's platform, to be on Sony's, to be on any future Valve platform, and any other company that enters this space. I imagine Disney will want to make sure that their content is available on. I joked about this a little bit uh, internally among us, but uh, the I'm just going to throw it out there that Disney's even got this uh, residential communities that they're building out where they're calling it story living with local programming that you pay dues to participate in with your housing project, uh, your, your local community. And I think of when I think of that and that effort, it reads to me as much like the metaverse efforts as anybody else, where it's just a, such a broad definition of what this stuff is capable of. But this idea that you can like live in a fantasy land outside of reality is very startling uh, at the same time that many companies are, are sort of trying to get there because it just means that uh, more money in your pocket uh, we got to move to the end of this uh, show here. Are we ready to talk about the third-person legs, or are there any comments there that we should respond Yeah, we'll talk to? about third-person legs. I just do think it's fascinating how Disney's kind of doing those two things at the same time. You have that living you're talking about that is so incredibly expensive that it's almost going to be Westworld-like, you know, for rich people to have this real-life fantasy, while at the same time they're trying to expand access to these physical locations by bringing it the cost down to virtual reality. It's, it's a fascinating well, such- dual-pronged approach. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm curious if you combine them, right? If you, We've got this uh, Niantic, uh, the creator of Pokemon Go, uh, the technology company behind po- Pokemon Go. They're trying to do this thing where they call it a, uh, a world-scale map of the world, right? And they've got these 
locations that you go and scan. So Pokestops, they actually give you rewards in the game if you go and scan locations in the real world using your phone and help them build out this better map of of the world. It's really interesting to think of what uh, Disney could do if they scan these residential communities down to you know the centimeter and then layer on all these virtual interactive things on all those locations. Like, could they build local versions of their park as an experiment in your community where you have, like, you go down to the park and you can reskin it to be uh, like various lands in Disney? Uh, it'd be interesting yeah. to see if they, they go down that path. Yeah, the last thing I, just, I would just say on that is just kind of like I was referring to before, the problem is that a huge percentage of the world's population lives in mega cities where there are no parks. You know, the parks are either tiny or they're not the kind of park you would really want to visit. And they live in these giant skyscrapers. That, so it's just, even then, the, the experience you're talking about of providing this real world experience is going to be in many ways for kind of first world countries or rural locations. And that's one of the really interesting things about this, you know, which will be bigger VR or AR debate that a lot of people bring up is that AR like that, this mixed reality in your real environment will be likely more popular in the first world, but globally it's likely that VR will be more popular for those reasons. Yeah, we've talked about that. And I saw this fundamental question uh, from uh, I, from someone who just wanted to ask why are 360 videos awful or why most 360 videos bad? Because you can't do this. You can't lean. You can't. I can't lean my head. Every movement here that I'm doing is not matched by a, a 360 video. The the world is locked wherever it is, and that is extremely uncomfortable. I hate it. Uh, I will last maybe ten minutes before I just I want out because I need I need this. I need to be able to lean. I lean in the real world. I need to be able to lean in VR, and I just want to make sure that's clear out there. Yeah, so. Real. Real yeah. video capture is one of the huge potentials of VR that was talked about a lot, you know, six years ago when VR was becoming a consumer technology. But, and we don't actually talk about it enough because it's one of those far off technologies that really could be hugely impactful. But what will need to happen for real world content to become viable is that it will need to be sixed off. You'll need to, you'll need to have some sort of ice cream cone style capture device that you can just hold in a room and capture the scene so that when you play it back later, you can actually move your head around it. And that's going to require a huge number of advancements in computer vision and reconstruction and all of these technologies. And I, we just don't know when that's really going to be viable. And next, next VR was right at the cusp of that. Uh, next VR is one of those companies that was doing a lot of the 180 degree and 360 capture. Their capture was great. And they actually showed me a demo of the fundamental beginnings of reconstructing that sixed off movement. And then they were, they ran out of money, but they were acquired by Apple. So Apple is right there trying to realize that technology. So let's talk about Meta working on third person legs for its avatars. He need turned this story in. And I was very confused by this headline and tried to come up with something better, but I could not. Heaney, explain what's going on. Yeah, so if anyone is familiar with meta avatars, the, the likes that we're using now, you'll know that they do not have legs. The avatars we're using are just torsos. And <laughs> no, a lot of people he, find that. That was terrifying. Don't do that. Don't break their, 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 their they came with us to see our upper bodies. They didn't want to see our ghost bottom body. <laughs> yeah, we. So we. The reason we use these specific camera angles in this studio, and the reason we don't pan out more, for example, and the reason that we even very carefully cover the wide view with the tablets, which 
yeah, it actually requires quite a lot of effort to get all that to work properly, is because these avatars do not have legs. Meta has been ridiculed for years about this because even before the Oculus avatars did not have legs. Now, I'm going to give kind of the, the steel man case for Meta here. The reason that they would argue this, it's not because they're too lazy to add legs. It's not because they don't know how to add legs. It's not like the weirdest theory I've heard here is that they don't want any sexual stuff happening in, on their platforms. And Meta isn't the only VR company that avatars doesn't have legs. If you go to Rec Room, the avatars don't have legs. If you go to Alt Space, the avatars don't have legs. If you go to Big Screen, the avatars don't have legs. Interestingly, though, when this is criticized, people only ever talk about Meta, and that's fine. They're you know they're the big corporation that's trying to push this. They deserve much more criticism than those startups. But the reason that VR apps that don't have legs don't show you legs is because no VR system on the market today has leg tracking. So yes, you can get add-ons. You can, you know, you can, if you have base stations, you can attach five trackers and you get legs. But for the vast majority of people, they do not want to spend, you know, $300 for the trackers and two, you know, $150 each for the base stations to get all this set up. Developers have to assume that 99% of their users don't have that. So they have two choices. They can give you fake legs or they can give you no legs. Fake legs have the advantage of it doesn't look horrifying when some, when you're looking at someone. It doesn't look like some sort of weird ghostly figure is in front of you, but it has a huge disadvantage. When you look down, the legs that you see are not your actual legs. So you move your leg and those legs don't move. When you are moving around the world with a thumbstick, it can appear as if you're kind of shuffling around. And if you move with your real legs, so say you're in room scale and you kind of walk over here, if you have fake legs, they'll kind of warp over in a very unnatural way. So there's no there's no like perfect answer here with current hardware. The developers that choose not to give you legs aren't lazy. They're just making a design decision. That said, overall, it's probably most people would probably agree even if there's significant disagreement about whether you should look down and see your own legs, most people would probably agree that you'd rather see other avatars with legs. So that's what Meta is now working on. You can see a preview of what this looks like here. And it means that when you look over at other avatars, you will see their legs and it will just, you'll see their fake legs and it will estimate where their legs are likely to be. But when you look down, you won't see your own leg. And that's not a huge issue in VR, at least to most people. For There's still a huge debate about whether it's better to see only your hands or see an elbow because it doesn't have no current VR system has arm tracking either. My elbow is currently in a very different position than to where it's being visually shown. And it does feel weird. It does. You lose that connection between this is my actual arm when you're, you can feel that your arm is nowhere near where it's visually shown. So this is a really interesting debate. People have very strong opinions on either side, but all I'm trying to point out here is that this is not some sort of settled thing. This is not a matter of, oh, years ago they didn't have arms and legs and now apps do and they're better. It's different. To you know, to be clear about the case of people who do want legs, they, they would find seeing nothing when they look down deeply uncomfortable themselves. Ideally, this would be something that the user can choose, and that's what quite a few games now actually do. Yeah, a great summary there. A uh, very interesting problem to solve. Uh, and I'm seeing one of the one of the commenters here. I can't remember who said it. Uh, one of our 
uh, members, I think. Let's see if I can find it. Adam, yeah, saying, sounds like a need more cameras problem. That was one interesting route that we had talked about where uh, the MetaQuest Pro uh, headset that we showed earlier has cameras installed on the, the actual controllers. That's how they track their location. So those are self-tracking devices. We've talked about the potential of maybe they could get some leg tracking data from those in your hands. But then again, you know, what are two frames uh, every 10 seconds of data going to help you uh, show the position of your legs in any great way? Another interesting idea was an outside-in solution com- combination where we talked about Portal potentially having a camera facing you and provide some of that information. Meta obviously started pushing Portal towards a uh, an enterprise solution, so we don't know if that's going to be the case. And then if you think about the idea that over the long term, you might put your controllers on a stand uh, facing you, uh, maybe they could also track your legs in that sort of situation where uh, you're wearing the headset but you've decided not to use the controllers. But uh, still, there's latency and just the... Um, incredible number of positions for your legs to be in that are going to be a hard problem to solve. Heaney, I've always wanted a mat on the on the ground. I've always thought that that would be a great route because, you know, Dance Dance Revolution has been a product for decades and obviously they only have what two two spots or five or nine spots for you to put your legs uh on those mats, but I still think that would be a pretty cool solution uh if you could improve that just a little bit and uh, have your legs tracked that way a little bit. Yeah, so a mat could give you detection. You know, you could know where the feet are touching. And if you made it really expensive and put kind of uh, range finders, laser range finders all over it, you could maybe come up with some sort of solution. But it's just going to end up costing more than it would to ship something like an external puck that had a camera on it doing computer vision. We did, like you say, see res- we did see research of having a camera on the controller that is facing towards you. The Quest Pro controller cameras are actually facing away from you. The, if you have one towards you, you can get a pretty good body tracking a lot of the time. The problem is it's not all of the time. The other obvious potential solution is to put a camera on the front of the headset facing downwards, and that's what Pimax claims they're going to do. And that can work too, but the problem is that doesn't work with everyone's body shape. There is, there's going to be parts of your body that will occlude the view to your legs looking down, depending on, you know, your your frame, your gender, things like that are going to deeply affect whether that can see you. Realistically, I can't see this happening without an external tracking solution. I think we're going to need some sort of little puck that you place down on a table or a bench beside you to give you full body tracking. Meta seems very, very adverse to this idea for some reason. They have this almost kind of Johnny Ivesian aversion to the idea of it. They think, think it's kind of clunky and not very elegant. But I think we'll see another company attempt this that wants to go for practicality because I just don't see how this can be solved otherwise. Richie's comment, uh, play in front of a mirror. Uh, that is a cool idea. I think there's been some research along those lines. Uh, yeah, and I like Daniel the- Leeper. Daniel Leeper's joke, where we're going, we don't need legs. There's all of these kind of contrived solutions where you can have, uh, you know, a mirror or as you say, you place down the controllers. But the problem is then you can't use it when you have your controllers. There's all of these partial solutions. But if you want developers to be able to build apps on the assumption that you can use your legs, for example, you know, you can have, I don't know, a, foot, uh, 
football, as Americans would say soccer app, if you want to have something where you can kick enemies, you have to know that the user can always have this and you have to know that it works for all of your users in all of the situations. You can't build a game around the controllers having uh, leg tracking because as that research points out, there are always going to be angles where you put your controllers that they can no longer see your legs. And what happens when that's when you decide to kick, you're going to be really frustrated that this isn't being detected. It's like gesture systems that don't work. If you've ever tried to play a game on some sort of platform that has gesture detection and it isn't working properly, it's one of the most frustrating things you can really see. The other you know, problem with the headset being the tracking is that as headsets get slimmer and slimmer, it's going to occlude the view of your body even more. So I, yeah, I, I just can't see this happening without a some sort of external solution although technically they could do what they're doing with the wrist on your legs you just put leg bands around and then they intercept the signals going from your brain to your legs telling them where to move but again that's just more stuff to wear a really interesting comment from Guy Godin the developer of virtual desktop saying that uh, he thinks that they need legs avatars need legs not for people in vr but for people not familiar with vr because the biggest issue for meta hasn't been people in horizon world saying i hate that i don't have legs if you go into horizon worlds the people who actually use it are very happy with it and they don't really have a problem with that the problem and the biggest criticism always comes from people who have never ever tried either vr chat or rec room or horizon or any of these platforms who are on social media and see a screenshot from Horizon and say, oh, that's dumb. And why don't they have legs? Why, Second Life had legs. Why can't Zuckerberg make legs? You know, and that's that doesn't matter if you're a VR developer building for developers, or building for current VR owners. But if you're meta and you want to grow the VR market, you can't have your flagship product be ridiculed. It needs to be something that's actually appealing to the people who are thinking of buying a headset. You know, I'm going to throw it out. I'm going to go back to my Matt idea and just, I think it's, I think it's interesting that so many people doubted the idea of working out in VR, uh, and now it is one of the biggest growing uses of VR, and the benefits there are extremely clear. We've got interviews in our in our studio here with people who have just have found uh, the privacy of working out in their own home to be an incredible incentive to getting in the headset and not feeling judged by the outside world while still being able to work out. And I think it's it's funny to me in retrospect to think that, you know, dancing is this fundamental human activity across every culture. And what we have seen in Beat Saber is someone figure out how to make dancing fun when you can only track your hand movements. Right and head movements, so they've they, you've adapted uh, dancing to this 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 limitation of the technology, but I'm just going to go there, Heaney, like a, a mat that gives me a slight bit of haptics, and you know that the mat would dramatically expand the the opportunities for working out in VR. It would it would bring the whole idea of working out in VR home, and actually Supernatural right before they got uh, acquired. They put out uh, uh, some products up on their uh, service uh, website, so you could buy like a merch to support your supernatural addiction in getting uh, fit. But one of the things they had was a little circular mat that you could just put on down on the ground as like your your VR space mat. It's a very inexpensive mat; doesn't have any technology in it, but it's still this thing that will help a lot of people stay centered in their VR space and staying. Uh, 
staying exactly where they should to do their workouts. So I think there's, I think there's potential there. We ready to yeah, move I on think- to our last subject of the day? Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, bring up Anakazi's comment, which is what I was saying before. The, the problem is you just have to put a ridiculous amount of sensors into the map to get anywhere near the fidelity you're looking for in VR. Just like when you compare a, a Nintendo Wii controller that detects gestures to uh, you know, a VR controller that detects precise position, there's a world of difference in detection and tracking, and it would end up just costing a lot of money, though. Maybe someone figures it out. Yeah, I get it. I I, I still think it's a, an area that we could see some innovation in. Yeah, I think someone might try to figure that out. Uh, and I'm seeing in our comments, yeah, how many sensors do we have inside the device to make that feasible? But I'm just saying that Dance Dance Revolution had only that few number of sensors. And even those sensors, they break. It makes the whole game unplayable. But you had an incredibly uh, appealing experience, both in arcades and at home, that sold a lot of units to a lot of people just with that few number of sensors. You double the number of sensors even from there, and you have uh, a handful of games that would be a lot cooler. So our last subject of the day today is that a Pico 4 pre-order listing appeared, revealing the launch date, and it teased the design a little bit more. Heaney, uh, what do we mean by launch date here? What do we expect to happen on this date, and what is that date? So, yeah, this is this came up on a Chinese retailer. It showed a placeholder price that translates to $1,500, but the text very clearly said that that is only a placeholder price, and if you pre-ordered for something like the equivalent of $15, the price would be revealed on September the 27th. So that's when this is indicating that this will launch, you know, you will have a price revealed and presumably that's when the pre-order will then be processed. At least that's what the translation of the Chinese text appeared to show. So this is, if what we've heard so far about this Pico headset, that it's essentially a slimmer Quest 2 with color pass-through and higher resolution, this is going to be the first time that Meta faces true real competition in the standalone VR market. That's assuming that this launches in the US. We think it will launch in the US because A, a Chinese analyst reported that it would be a global launch, and B, because job listings for Pico were found referencing a consumer US launch. It's going to be, there really just hasn't been a time in VR where Meta has faced serious competition. I know some people uh, thought that, you know, at the time of HTC and Valve working against Facebook, that that was something that was going to provide serious competition. But I think time showed that Facebook was kind of capable of executing against that kind of company. This is a company that is, ironically, Meta's biggest competition in the outside VR space. The same company, ByteDance, that owns TikTok, also owns this Pico line of headsets. And while Meta is trying to, you know, implement cost cutting and refocus their business and rapidly grow their Reels product to compete against TikTok, TikTok is growing. And it is, that means growing ad revenue relative to their uh, previous revenue. It means they have the money to invest. And the interesting thing about that Chinese analyst report is that he claims that ByteDance claims to subsidize this headset, playing meta at their own game. We know that Quest 2 was subsidized. What happens when another company comes along with a superior hardware and plays that same subsidization game against Zuckerberg? Yeah, and Guy Godin in there, uh, the creator of Virtual Desktop, saying that Virtual Desktop will support Pico headsets this fall. That's a very big win 
for Pico headsets. And I saw other comments there asking what content is playable on uh, the headset. If you go find, uh, you know, search Upload VR Top Quest Games, uh, there is a good portion of those Top Quest games that are supported on Pico's headset. So I want to say uh, Demio and Walkabout uh, are on there, and I can't remember the other. Super Hot, uh, I think, is on there. And it's a it's a very good uh, number of those top games are supported on the headset, as Heaney and we've talked about in the past, is uh, there's not a lot of announcements of exclusive content or some of the big, big things that we know Meta has gone and paid to bring to their headset. So things like uh, Grand Theft Auto, Resident Evil 4, those things are coming to Meta headsets, but we haven't heard the same caliber of content being promised for Pico yet. Yeah, so what I expect to happen, as is already happening, as you can see in this image, and you know, you see after the fall, you see walk about mini golf, you see 11 table tennis, is that if this headset comes out and it really is at a competitive price, it launches in the US and it there isn't some sort of major design flaw, developers are going to flock to it because why wouldn't you? It's a new market. The people who aren't exclusive to Meta are going to port their games over for the sensible business reasons. The problem, of course, is that Meta owns quite a few of the studios that behind the most popular VR games, you know, and it has funded full exclusives, Resident Evil 4, as Ian has pointed out, Medal of Honor, it has Beat Saber, it has Population 1, it has the studio behind Asgard's Wrath working on some sort of new title, it has the Echo Arena developer, so it's it, and it has Twisted Pixel games as well. But we do know from that same round of job listings that showed that Pico was interested in consumer launch, that they are launching their own Pico Studios. We don't know what the scale of that's going to be. Is this going to be kind of indie games or is it going to be triple A's? But this this how that pans out really comes down to how well this will compete against Quest 2 in the market. Because as it stands now, with just all of these third-party titles being ported across, consumers are going to be faced with the decision, do I get the slimmer headset with higher resolution and color pass-through? Or do I get the headset that has more games, Quest 2? If Pico can come along and deliver the kind of games that are on the caliber of Resident Evil 4, then they can make that decision a lot easier for consumers. Then it just becomes the standard Xbox versus PlayStation style of whose exclusives do I like better rather than one platform having these exclusives. Some people have expressed skepticism about the idea that Pico could deliver games on the caliber of Resident Evil 4. But remember, they are owned by ByteDance, one of the largest, most profitable tech companies on the planet. And they, as we've pointed out on this show before, they, if they need it, have the financial backing of the Chinese government. Yeah, and uh, the, the backing of the Chinese government is a very interesting thing to think about long term. I saw a couple of people in our comments uh talking about this it's one of the reasons that you know uh competing against quest uh two in western markets is going to be just on its surface difficult because of the exclusives and the software and the embedded uh the embedded already you know lead meta has there uh but you add to this the idea that you know, uh, certain companies have been talked about being blocked in the United States on a regulatory level. TikTok uh, last uh, election cycle was uh, uh, talked about a lot as potentially being blocked. And that could drum up again. And it's one of those reasons why I think 
you know, uh, there's reason to for for Pico to focus on elsewhere for now. Uh, you know, I think if you come out swinging again in the West too hard, too fast, you could be uh, potentially up for some difficult uh, situations there. But we'll see what happens. Uh, obviously. Uh, yeah, Oakley Dokley, just bringing on that point as well, Oakley Dokley pointing out, has there been a, a Chinese brand that succeeded technology-wise in the US? I, I don't know if it's in the US, but in the, in the in Europe, where Pico has launched their Pico Neo 3 Link first, Chinese brands like Xiaomi and Huawei are very, very popular. It's not uncommon at all to walk around a European city and see many people holding a Xiaomi or a Huawei phone. I think the main reason that that hasn't really gone well in the US is because phones in the US are sold mainly through carriers and kind of locked into this carrier system, whereas in the rest of the world, there's much more separation between the carrier and the phone. It's more like the way you would, you know, it's more like the separation between your computer and your internet service provider than the way in the US it's all very tied together. So in the in the sense of VR hardware, there's not going to be that same tie. People are still going to buy, you know, a Pico presumably from something like Amazon or Best Buy or wherever they get in. But that is a huge, interesting question. Will there be regulatory pushback in the kind of looming cold trade war with China that's a, that's already kind of started and escalated a lot in the Trump era and is now continuing in many ways through the Biden era? Will it get to the point where ByteDance is one of those companies put on this list of import restrictions? And is that something that they are considering when they when they invest into this U.S. strategy? I saw a lot of people asking you to. Uh just guess at price and give your thoughts on what is a competitive price here uh, for Quest. Obviously, we've seen the Quest go from 300 to 400 entry level. And so now it's a device that is $400 or $500. Those are the two models of Quest 2 you can get this year. What What is competitive with that in your head? So I think this needs to be $500 or below to really make an impact in the market. If it's $500, then that's $100 more than a Quest 2 for a slimmer design, higher resolution, and color pass-through. That's worth it. If it's $400, if it's the, i.e. the same price as Quest 2, that's going to make a huge impact. That's going to be, even from a psychological perspective, the idea that these two headsets are the same price. If it's over $500, then I don't think in the short term, this is going to have the kind of impact on Quest 2 that we're talking about here. It's not a meaningful competitor. As John Carmack has pointed out before and other uh, console market analysts have pointed out before, every $100 you increase the price of a games console or a piece of technology that's similar to it, you'd lose a lot. You use a significant amount of users. It's not like a small reduction. And every time you reduce the price by $100, it's not in any way like when you reduce the price you uh, from 400 to 300 you you might expect that you get 25% more sales but you don't it's a significantly more than that each $100 is really meaningful at these prices so i think it has to be under $500 to really matter and i'm seeing uh, i saw some comments earlier talking about uh just the idea that people are invested in the quest, if, if you you've already bought into the quest ecosystem, going and rebuying these games over on 
Pico system is not going to happen. It's going to it's a very tall order to imagine people going and repurchasing their games. I think we're heading towards the end of the show, but uh, we've had an incredible discussion here. So if there's any last-minute comments, drop them into our thread here, and we'll try to get them uh, responded to. I saw one question for Heaney here on his PSVR 2 impressions. Do you know which games were running in that uh Reprojected way, or the you know the sixty to one hundred and twenty. Did you see it on all four of the games you tried? So it was definitely in the Walking Dead scenes and sinners. It was definitely in Horizon. I was not able to get a confirmation as to whether Resident Evil Village was, but I could see the double imaging. It was very clearly also doing it. The one game where it didn't seem to be happening was Tales from the Galaxy's Edge. I suspect they're rendering at native ninety or one twenty, which felt a lot better. But it, who knows, that could have just been some sort of software differences there. Definitely, I would say from using my own eyes, though, in those in three of those games, it was. And I think in many ways, that's how developers are getting on board and to port something like Resident Evil Village. It's a, it's a tall order to get them to get that to run at 90 frames per second or 120 frames per second. But if you tell developers, oh, no, don't worry, just get it at 60 frames per second and our system will handle the rest, then that's a lot easier for sony to pitch it but yeah a few people have been pointing out in the comments that on playstation vr1 this was really distracting to them and to me it truly is like i said when i'm in this studio right now there's there's sort of cameras over here when i lean my head those cameras look like solid objects there's no double imaging and i remember i was walking around the walking dead on playstation vr2 and every time i had to try and find something in the room i had to stop the thumbstick and stop translating my head so that i could actually look around and see the object clearly because i'm looking on some sort of shelf and looking for clues for the object i'm looking for it was it was just a blur as i was moving along uh people have pointed out that i heard some people before ask you know why didn't anyone else notice this but as people have pointed out in the comments road to vr Ben Lang also saw this. He tried the headset over in America. And so I think if you you know if you look at a normal technology magazine, they don't really use VR much. I mean, that's a huge assumption. I could be wrong about the reporters they chose. But if you look at someone like Upload VR, us, or Road to VR, we're the people who spend hours a day or you know dozens of hours a week in headsets. We are used to this. And I want to point out that the demos were given were 10 minutes. So if you're a journalist that isn't very used to VR and you're brought into this fancy new headset and you see this amazing visuals, you may not be thinking about it or you may not even be used to it. You may think something's off but not really quite be able to put your finger on what is off. But I promise you it is definitely a real thing and maybe you can choose to ignore it, but I couldn't. Yeah, a great example of this is we were up uh, visiting Kyle uh, up in Ohio and we tried out the... um, sandbox vr location and we all came out of that just absolutely miserable uh because of the the frame rate issues that were happening in that headset but this is a location uh, that is hopping i mean it is very very busy with lots of people coming in and scheduling 15 minute demos of vr and they're coming out i think mostly pretty impressed because uh you if you're it's your first time you can distract yourself and you come out feeling a little bit weird maybe maybe you just chalk that up to uh the idea that you were in vr and not to the fact that the headset is not running uh, at the proper frame rate what is going on here heaney you're freaking me out my headset has one percent battery so i have to (laughs) unless everyone wants me to disappear into nothingness i need to take this very long cable and plug it in (laughs) 
<laughs> see if it starts charging. I've had problems with it not charging. But I think we're at the end of our show here. And I appreciate everyone for tuning in. Um, um, I think that worked. You're charging. Yeah, we appreciate everyone. I, I, Heaney, you made a comment that you used your own eyes in the PSVR 2 demo. Well, I appreciate you for using your own eyes there and uh, getting that firsthand experience with a next generation headset that we're very, very, very excited about getting more information about. Uh, we've obviously had a, a massive episode. Please like, comment, subscribe, share this link out to others. We've had uh, one of our most sustained, largest viewerships ever on this show. So thank you so much for tuning in. And I think we'll be back tomorrow, right, Heaney? Uh, I think we're planning to come back to talk specifically about the games that Heaney tried in VR. And then on Friday, we'll have Backseat VR developer, I think Samurai Slaughterhouse is lined up with Between Realities, Alex and Skiva playing through that with the developer. And we will be back next week again with a new show on Tuesday. We've got a couple weeks left here until the MetaConnect event, as well as the details on Pico coming out. And everything is starting to come together here. So please uh, join us on this journey and continue with us. I think Heaney has something he wants to respond to before we close out. No, I was, I was just going to say that's one of the advantages of a wired system. I talked earlier about the disadvantages of being wired in that how it kind of is distracting and annoying and can detract from the immersion. But as you've just saw from what I had to do, you don't run out of battery. The problem is if you're really immersed in a wireless system and you get two hours into a game, you're going to get that message pop up, headset battery is low, like I just had, and you're going to have to go and be wired. And interestingly, it's one of the advantages of ViFocus 3. Obviously, it's not a consumer headset, but the battery on the back of it just is completely swappable. It just slots out, and then you have this little charger that you can have all the batteries ready to go, and you slot back in and play again. So... Obviously, I don't think that's something that's going to happen in consumer headsets anytime soon because of the, the engineering difficulties that probably contribute to the Vive Focus 3's $1,300 price. But it is a factor to think. You can play PlayStation VR 2 for 10 hours in a row if you really want to, if you can handle that, and you're not going to have to worry about battery other than the controllers themselves. Yeah, and uh, thank you for Bicycle for tuning in here at the end of our show, going back to the beginning to watch it again. Uh, thank you so much. And there was one question here that I saw multiple times and we never addressed. Do you think PSVR 2 is going to fit glasses wearers? I don't wear glasses, so I don't know. But as someone has pointed out here, uh, Mike from VR Oasis, who, who I saw there at the event, I didn't get to talk to him. We were both very busy, but he was trying it with glasses and said it worked okay. Unfortunately, I Unfortunately, I was blessed with... Perfect eyesight, so I don't have that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, I forgot to share all the other facts that I learned about Heaney uh, on our on our tour. Uh, but, yeah, very fast walker and apparently blessed with perfect eyesight. Uh, so, anyways, uh, thank you so much for tuning in this week. We'll see you in the future. And, uh, yeah, come back to us uh, next week on Tuesday, I think, at 10 a.m. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you.